This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Welcome to Radio Free Canada, news and notes from the underground for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Just a reminder, this program is pre-recorded, And this is the international headquarters for the patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Just a warning, I don't list my pronouns in my Twitter bio. And while I'm at it, why is everything all about antioxidants? Where are the pro-oxidant people? You know, um, I'm constantly looking for ways to increase my carbon footprint. I I love carbon dioxide. I'm a big fan of this miracle molecule. Without CO2, life on Earth would not be possible. CO2 is not a pollutant. It's a nutrient. And I'm on this little rant because the global warming cultists who have seized power the world over continue to meet in Glasgow, Scotland as part of this COP26 climate summit. I call it a climate change coven. And it's hosted by globalist Boris Johnson. Boy, Boris fooled a lot of us, didn't he? I actually thought he was a conservative at one point. Anyway, these sociopaths who flew into Glasgow and they used something like 400 private jets, couldn't this be accomplished on a big Zoom call? And the electric cars, some of them are driving around in over there to virtue signal. I have it on good authority, the charging stations for those electric cars are powered by diesel. Just so you know. It's a fraud. It's a a lie. Meanwhile, they're busy figuring out how to dismantle Western civilization. Our Prime Minister wants to destroy Canada's oil and gas industry. He wants to drastically lower our standard of living. Have a listen to this. Just as globally we've agreed to a minimum corporate tax, we must work together to ensure it is no longer free to pollute anywhere in the world. 
That means establishing a shared minimum standard for pricing pollution. Of course, what's even better than pricing emissions is ensuring that they don't happen in the first place. Which brings me to my next major commitment. We'll cap oil and gas sector emissions today and ensure they decrease tomorrow at a pace and scale needed to reach net zero by 2050. That's no small task for a major oil and gas producing country. It's a big step that's absolutely necessary. He doesn't believe in climate change. These climate change cultists don't believe in global warming. They know it's a lie, but it's a lie that serves their purpose because they want to create some kind of a new feudal age. Not for them. They're the, they're the lords. We're the serfs. They want to create this dystopian future of control over every facet of our lives. Think about it. If, if they really believed that carbon dioxide was responsible for catastrophic climate change, would Canada, for example, purposely, this is a self-inflicted wound, would they purposely destroy our oil and gas industry, which is among the world's cleanest and certainly the world's most ethical? Instead of bringing that energy to the rest of the country via pipeline, what do they do? They import oil for Eastern Canada from Saudi Arabia. Wow, what a wonderful progressive place, right? Saudi Arabia, that's ethical oil. And they put that oil and gas on huge oil tankers, which burn bunker fuel. Dirty bunker fuel. The largest of these tanker ships are like six football fields long. And they produce just one. One of these huge tankers produces as much CO2 in one year as 15 million automobiles, 15 million cars. So if we stopped importing oil from Saudi Arabia and used our own oil and gas and shipped it across the country via pipeline, we would offset by many times all of the CO2 produced by all of the cars in this country. Think about that. But they won't do that. And that's how you know this whole climate narrative, this whole climate change, global warming narrative is a fiction. Don't listen to what our so-called leaders say. Watch how they behave. Again, if climate change was this existential threat, would they be flying all over the place in their private jets? Would they be charging their electric vehicles with diesel-powered charging stations? It's a fraud. These sociopaths are going to use this so-called climate emergency the same way they're using COVID. It's about control. And if you think travel is inconvenient now with vaccine mandates and constant testing, this is a trial run. Wait until the climate change lockdowns begin and we're issued carbon credit cards will only be allowed a certain carbon footprint. Every purchase, every trip we make in our car, on a plane, that will all be deducted from our carbon credit. And once we've reached our carbon limit, that's it. That steak you just ordered from the keg, well, you just reached your carbon limit for the month or maybe the year. 
it's soy burgers for you for the rest of the year. That road trip down the 401 in your car to Windsor to visit your grandchildren, you just maxed out on your travel limit. This is our future. COVID is a beta test. Understand this. We will own nothing and we will be happy. Oh, you're, you're, you're just a conspiracy theorist, Richard. You're just paranoid conspiracy theorist. I, I always get a chuckle uh, out of these tweets I see from organizations. How to talk to your conspiracy-minded friends as if it's some kind of a mental illness. What to say to conspiracy theorists? Well, you could start with an apology and an admission that the conspiracy theorists seem to be getting it right most of the time these days. How do we determine what is true, what is false, and what is misleading? Fact check this. Whenever somebody likens the massive and uh, unwarranted authoritative overreach in state control we're seeing in Canada, when they compare that to Nazi Germany, that individual is usually condemned, and probably rightly so, for the most part. I mean, to make such a comparison, in many ways it does, it diminishes the Holocaust. I would agree. I don't think we're living in Nazi Germany yet, but it's not for me uh, or, or anyone else who didn't experience life in Hitler's Germany to make that comparison. But I do think the coercion and the authoritarianism and the vaccine mandates and travel bans and the disregard for basic civil liberties we're seeing in this country are extremely troubling to say the least. It's not Nazi Germany. But Nazi Germany didn't happen overnight. It was incremental. It happened in stages. Just because we're not there yet doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned. And at the same time, we should listen to people who survived Hitler's Germany, people who survived the Holocaust. When they express concern with what's happening in Canada and North America, when they start to express concerns, we should stand up and take notice. This is... Vera Sharav, a Holocaust survivor. She's a public advocate for human rights and the founder and president of the Alliance for Human Research Protection. Have a listen. When medicine veers away from the Hippocratic Oath that promises to respect the individual right to do no harm to the individual, then you're going to harm the community as well because the community is a bunch of individuals. There are crossroads in life where you have to make choices. And if you don't, someone who will make the choice for you is not going to make it for your best interest. The idea of just following authority without considering, what if they're wrong? What if it's not in my best interest? I wouldn't want to live in, under such a regime. I know what it's like. I know what that is. I, I don't want, I would not do it again. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. 
Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. I think it's very important to listen to Holocaust survivors and what they think about what's happening in our country and elsewhere right now. Vitally important. All right, coming up on today's program, a Yale epidemiologist says he recommends pulling your child from school and homeschooling your child in order to avoid the COVID vaccine. And he'll join me this hour to discuss. Dr. Harvey Risch is a professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. And he says that kids with serious chronic conditions should be considered for vaccination. But other than that, he says, if it were my child, I would homeschool them. He's a former member of the board of editors for the American Journal of Epidemiology. He's the author of more than 350 original peer-reviewed research publications. Seems like a pretty credible person. He says, honestly, I would organize with other parents and take them out of the school and create homeschooling environments. He says, there is no choice. Your child's life is on the line. Ruth Gaskowski is our homeschooling advisor, and she'll be here with some more tips and resources for those of you who are seriously contemplating extricating your children from the public school system. National Post columnist Barbara Kay will be here in the second hour, the co-author of Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport along with Linda Blade, who's a re regular contributor on this program. Barbara will be here to discuss, among other things, how woke extremists are standing in the way of scientific progress. But first up, Yale University epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Risch. Stay with us. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Some words of caution this afternoon from a Yale epidemiologist concerning the risk benefits of the Pfizer COVID vaccine for school-aged children. Professor Harvey Risch is a professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. He's a former member of the Board of Editors for the American Journal of Epidemiology and the author of more than 350 original peer-reviewed research publications. Professor Risch, welcome to the program and thank you. How are you? Thank you. Great to be with you. Could I get you to repeat what you told Fox News host Mark Levin uh, the other evening concerning the risks and benefits of the Pfizer vaccine for school-aged children? Well, Levin asked me if I had uh, five-year-old children in school in California, what would I do? And my answer was, if they, the children had chronic conditions like diabetes or obesity, or they had immunocompromised because they had had cancer or had an organ transplant, then it'd be worth at least discussing 
the pros and cons about vaccination. I'm not saying they should be, but, uh, but worth discussing it. For all normal, healthy children, there's no reason to vaccinate children in that age range. And if I were forced, if the children were forced to be vaccinated, I would take them out of school. I would get together with other parents with similar views and homeschool them. That's what I said. I also said, I also said that the vaccines are not going to kill children. They, they, these are not major uh, hazardous uh, medication vaccines. However, there is enough of a hazard that I would not want my children exposed to them. And the, what we are gradually learning is not only the adverse events that are detected in the two, three, five days after vaccination, like myocarditis, inflammation of the heart and the heart membranes, but also more longer term reduction in the immune system's ability to fight infection. This information has been increasing in the last few weeks as we've had longer time to study the, the effects of the vaccines in adults. And this is not something that you want to expose young children to, or really anybody to, that doesn't need this kind of protection from the vaccines to the rest of their life, having to fight uh, harder just to maintain immunity against infections that they would normally be able to fight. There's no reason to, because children almost entirely do well with with the, um, the COVID infection. They are almost entirely asymptomatic. When they're symptomatic, they have fever, they get kind of tired for a few days, and then they bounce back, maybe headache. And that's most of what children get. They're not infectious to other people. They don't, they're not the source of outbreaks. And so, and we know this from studies of, uh, in families and in schools. So there's no real reason to vaccinate children. The data does seem to demonstrate all of those things that you just mentioned. So why would the FDA prove emergency use for 5 to 11-year-olds, given, as you say, the risk-benefit? You'll have to ask them for their reasoning. I cannot understand a rational reason to do this. I think that there is a, um, a lot of dissension that's under the surface, even in the FDA. The, uh, the vote on the panel, the panel had, I believe, 18 members. I think six had conflicts of interest with pharma companies, including the, the, the chair of the panel. The one um, panel member who abstained from voting said at interview he, would, he was afraid to vote no. And I think that characterizes some of the pressure that these panelists are feeling. And one of the panelists, who is editor-in-chief of the New England Journal, made a quote after the panel uh, decision saying, you can't know what vaccines do until you see what they do in people. And this statement that he could not or would not distinguish between the phase three randomized trial that the, the committee was supposed to review, that was the reason for their meeting, to review a trial to see what happens. He can't distinguish between that and just throwing this open to use in the general population means that he should not be the editor of a medical journal. That he, if he can't tell the difference between testing something to see how well it works and then going ahead and using it after approval, then he shouldn't be in a position to, to review or, or approve uh, public medical publications. It sounded like he said, to paraphrase, the only way we're going to find out if this is safe is to basically roll it out and see what happens. In other words, let's roll the dice with 5 to 11-year-olds. 
Right. That 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 was my take on it. Also, the FDA let the manufacturer get away with orders of magnitude too small of a study. They had no hospitalizations. They had no um, uh, mortality from from the study that they they compared 500. They looked at 250 children and compared them to 250 older young adults. And and all they did was look at antibody levels. They did not look at outcomes because there weren't any. This is not how you do science. This is not how you do re- regulation of science. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and discuss further with Yale University epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Risch right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's The Richard Serrett Show. We are back with Dr. Harvey Risch from Yale University, professor of epidemiology. Uh, we were talking about the FDA emergency use authorization for 5 to 11-year-olds. What about other cohorts? Let's start with school-aged children. Let's say 11 to 18. Uh, based on the data that you've looked at, is there any reason to vaccinate other than for those who have serious underlying conditions? In my opinion, no. The same thing applies that all of the data essentially suggest that healthy children, adolescents do not need to be vaccinated. They do fine. In both of these groups, uh, there is a very rare condition called MISC, which is an inflammatory state. Some of these uh, children and adolescents will get hospitalized. They almost entirely do well. The bad outcomes from that are negligible. People have been downplaying myocarditis. They've been saying, oh, myocarditis is, is a mild disease, and you're in the hospital for a couple of days, and then you walk out and you do fine. And this is a complete misrepresentation that myocarditis causes permanent damage to heart muscle. Even the people who have, are barely symptomatic from it, 5, 10, 15 years in the future will have um, heart muscle fatigue, and uh, maybe half of them will be candidates for heart transplant later in life. It's a very serious disease. And what we know now is that from a study that came out in the last few weeks, that for every case of myocarditis that's recognized, there's three others that are asymptomatic that also occur, and you can find by testing. And that means there's at least four times the amount of myocarditis than what the the CDC has recognized from its uh, inadequate VAERS reporting system which already undercounts by a large factor the, the number of cases that have really occurred. So we know this is a big problem. The emergency room doctors all over the country are reporting that they're seeing more and more of these cases, that they never saw these cases when COVID was just making the rounds as an infection, and now they're seeing them after vaccination has been rolled out. So this, this is a problem, and the, pro- the real problem is that because of the public health demand to push vaccination on everybody as its simple-minded solution to the pandemic, then all messaging has to be aligned with that, and therefore everything is in complete denial of the adverse events that have been coming because of the vaccination. And the, the CDC has got data from eight or nine databases across the United States, including the VAERS data, which is a public database. And they have steadfastly refused to provide any public information about those other seven or eight databases that they know contain adverse event information. 
This is not transparency. We expect in a democracy to have transparency of, of this kind of information, and we have not had it. Sometime in the new year, in early 2022, we could have COVID vaccines for infants, six months. What are your concerns there? That's insanity. That's total insanity. There have been no infants who've died from COVID. There have been no young children who've died from COVID, essentially none, except for ones who've had uh, these serious uh, chronic conditions. Johns Hopkins did a study of 48,000 children with COVID. There were no deaths in healthy children. This is irrational, fear-mongering based, um, uh, you know, top-down forced vaccination in a totalitarian state. This is not what a democracy does. Dr. Rich, for someone such as yourself to simply come out and speak about science as you see it and the truth, has there been a price? How have you been received by your colleagues for speaking out when, when so few are? Well, most of my colleagues have been very supportive of things that I've said. My, some colleagues have made assertions that I, you know, I have no experience to speak about this, and those people should not be scientists because they didn't do any research on me. After medical school, I went and got a PhD in mathematical models of infectious diseases. I published on that. I'm, a, I'm worldly on, on that topic, and for them to say I have no knowledge of infectious diseases is completely wrong. Secondly, the, the cancer research that I've done over my career of 40 years deals with medications, infectious diseases, uh, and, and other conditions that apply just as much now to treatment and adverse events in COVID, just like they apply to exposures in cancer etiology. So this is not something you can just wash away by, by making libelous claims against someone. Uh, these are, are false statements and, and need to be corrected. Dr. Rich, I think you're very courageous, and I thank you so much for your time and everything that you're doing and speaking out. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. Dr. Harvey Rich is a professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. Homeschooling advice and resources from our homeschooling advisor, Ruth Gazgowski, when The Richard Serrett Show continues in three minutes. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Back. Ruth Gazgowski is an experienced homeschooler, and uh, she's organized a number of homeschooling co-ops, and uh, you can read a lot of the... um, the links and uh, documents that she's put together, you can find those at her website, humanitasfamily.net, humanitasfamily.net. And we're going to talk about co-ops today and how to uh, um, uh, maybe form your own homeschooling co-op and some of the advantages of uh, homeschool groups, including co-ops. Ruth, welcome back once again. How are you? Very good, Richard. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess, you know, it goes without saying there's no one size fits all homeschooling model. Um, and some some people may not have thought about the having that option of of uh, forming homeschooling groups, pooling resources. Um, you know, not, it's not just about having your child in your home and you're teaching just them. Right. Yeah, that's true. And um, I think one thing that stood out for me most that I I guess the most important thing is all homeschoolers need community. 
So it's, uh, as you said, not just being in your home with your students. Uh, there are so many options available out there, and I would highly recommend them because one of the things is as homeschoolers, even though it's grown more popular, we're still swimming against the stream. And at times that can feel really isolating when all your friends and family, they're all, they all have their children in uh, normal public or private school, and it can make you feel sort of alone or maybe odd. And if you're having a rough day or a rough week, uh, you might question whether you've made the right choice or whether you're a good enough teacher or whether you're failing your child in some way. That happens to when you're alone. But the great thing is that when you get together with other homeschoolers, it helps to give you a bit of a reality check because you hear others who can empathize with you and actually just say, hey, you know, we all have a bad day. And that happens whether your child is in school or whether you homeschool. And it can offer really great encouragement. So I think that's one of the most important things um, of connecting with others in a homeschool group. Right. Um, and I it's think about, it's not just about providing, you know, uh, classmates and, and, and playmates for your children. It's about support for you as the parent and a community for you as well. Yes, and I think that's actually really essential because it's not like as parents when we start out, we're going to take a course in how do I be a homeschool teacher. We need others to sort of mentor us, and that is a great uh, setting in a homeschool group. Um, when I started out, um, I met with a mom who's done it for 15 years, and she took me kind of to the park and gave me sort of the intro and said, Ruth, read these three, bo three books. They've guided me throughout all these years, and it's actually the same three books that I still refer back to at the beginning of every year for encouragement or others who've done all the curriculum. And they said, I wish someone had told me that this is the best spelling curriculum. And it can be very helpful uh, when you're starting out just to get advice from really seasoned homeschoolers. Sure. Um, but as you said, so on the one part, it's for the parent to get encouragement, advice and guidance. But obviously also it offers our children a chance to connect while doing academics together or some different kind of courses together. And this also really helps them with motivation and it gives them a bit of healthy competition as well, I think. There are other advantages uh, other than the ones you've stated, I think to um, forming a, um, let's call it a co-op, pooling resources. Um, and, and that is, there are certain subjects that uh, parents may not feel equipped uh, for science, for example. You know, I don't have a Bunsen burner. I, I don't have a chemistry set. So you know, right. maybe I want to pool my resources with other parents and actually hire a science teacher. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. I think a lot of parents feel that they're able to guide their students through the early years and the middle grades. But I think once we kind of get to the slightly higher levels uh, in, uh, you know, grade eight and up in high school, we kind of, you know, <laughs> I don't remember my chemistry very well. And so what we did is we, we hired a, a science teacher who's taught uh, high school science. She's got all the experience. She has the background and we pool our resources and can share the cost and also share the cost of the materials. And the students have a very engaging time. Uh, we were able to do that, for example, with biology and got to do a whole lot of dissections of cow hearts and frogs and fish and worms, which would be something really messy and unappetizing to do at your own kitchen table, let alone knowing how to do it. So it's great to get people with specific skill areas that they can share, and uh, it benefits the whole group that way. 
Right. And, and parents might be saying, well, if you're just going to hire a teacher uh, and why not send them to regular school? But here you have just like in the old days when the when the when the parents really did have control, the parents of the community would hire the school teacher and the, the ones the one room schoolhouse. They hired the teacher. So you have that control. Right. And it allows you also to have control over what is actually being taught and what curriculum is being used. Um, so, for example, when we were teaching science, uh, we had the option of doing dissections, which are actually not available in many schools anymore. If, uh, a relative of mine teaches high school science, and she, she said they didn't do a single hands-on exp- experiment all year long. It's just um, not available. So we did weekly experiments. So we had over 35 experiments through the whole year. So students get very different exposure, and you have the choice um, to direct them that way. Ruth Gaskowski, our homeschooling advisor, stays with us. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show, straight ahead. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. So let's say you've decided you'd like to homeschool your children, but your partner is not so sure. It's, it's so important for both uh, the husband and wife, mother, father, to be on the same page when it comes to homeschooling. I was very fortunate, or my wife and I were very fortunate. We were we were both in total agreement uh, that uh, you know we wanted to homeschool our children, which we did for about four years. And uh, but it's it's not always you know that cut and dried. Sometimes there is that that tension, I guess, in the in the family when it comes to homeschooling. So how do we navigate this potential minefield? Ruth Gaskowski joins us every Tuesday at this time with some homeschooling tips and advice and resources. So you, you and I, we, we were both fortunate in this regard, as I said, uh, because, you know, both uh, parents fully supported homeschooling. What about families where that isn't the case? How do we how do you handle that? Right. Yeah, I would say actually this is one of the the most important questions really when considering homeschooling because it lays the foundation for everything we do in the home. So agreement on choosing this educational path, I would say, is essential in the long run because, as we know, a house divided cannot stand. And this is true not just for education but for other decisions we make as parents as well. So um, when you're in a marriage, making a marriage work, it takes effort, it takes compromise, and it takes commitment. And um, this is even more true when children come into the mix and we make additional decisions in raising them and also choosing this educational path. So I would say if choosing homeschooling comes at the cost of constant kind of argument and strife in the marriage... I would say it's not benefiting your child, no matter how great homeschooling could be. I would say that although I am an advocate for homeschooling, uh, peace in the home and in the marriage is is paramount. And I would place that before um, the educational choice. Right. I would agree with that. What, what are some of the more common reasons you've you've heard about where one parent is not in favor of homeschooling? Right. Yeah. Over the years, my husband and I have met lots of homeschooling families uh, where one parent either rejected the idea wholeheartedly or maybe was highly skeptical or critical. And I would say those reasons fall into two kinds of categories. And the first is a no to homeschooling kind of as a knee-jerk reaction, just kind of an emotional reaction, maybe based out of fear 
or anxiety of, of the unknown. And in this kind of case, uh, it's usually the, uh, because the parent doesn't really know very much about homeschooling or isn't very informed, um, hasn't heard much about it, or maybe hasn't ha- had any contact with homeschooling families. So in this case, uh, a solution would be basically just researching homeschooling like <clears throat> any other educational option that is available. I remember when we started out, I figured, well, here we have a child. There are educational options. There's the public system, the Catholic system, there's Montessori, there's private, and there's homeschooling. It would make sense just to research all of those educational options and see what they have to offer. And I think when you see homeschooling as just one of those options, it also seems a little less threatening or anxiety-provoking and just as valid an area to research as any other educational choice that you might make. Um, And the second category of parents who would reject homeschooling is because of a specific reason. So they might have concern about the academics, you know, are the standards going to be high enough? How will, uh, what I often hear is, well, how do you know how well your child is doing? Are you testing them? Um, Or uh, will you be a good teacher? It might be a a financial question, you know, can we afford to homeschool? What if only one of us works? Um, How can we cut expenses? It could also be worries about socialization that we um, have often heard about, but that we also recognize these things are all areas that actually have answers. So again, here, the, the direction to go would be to research and find information. There's lots of information available on the internet, either via my site and many of the resource sites that I list, um, or do it the old-fashioned way and go to the library, check out everything on homeschooling and research. What does the information really tell us about these areas of concern? And the one area of research that I liked best was live research with families. So this is interactive interviews, meeting with a homeschooling family and just pouring out your heart of specific questions. And I find the the more you interact with people who have lots of experience in homeschooling, the more you realize that there are answers to those questions and concerns and ways to alleviate them. Right. Hopefully, you know, the partner that is reticent to homeschool is at least willing, uh, you know, that they're they're willing to uh, listen to, you know, reason and uh, I guess evidence, if you will, or, or, you know, be exposed to other points of view rather than just saying, no, I've made up my mind. And if they have uh, made up their mind, then as you say, you've got to preserve the marital unity and family peace above all else. So uh, at that point, you may have to step away. But if they're at least open to it, then then you take that next step. What about in in situations where uh, the um, there's divorce? So one parent has custody. Uh, but the other parent and the other parent is saying, no, I don't want you to homeschool. What do you do then? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. 
Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Yeah, I would say that's a lot uh, of a, that's a trickier minefield um, as there are custody questions involved and possibly courts. So this is a great uh, place where you would turn to HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, because that's exactly the situations that they are there for to advise you and lend you support if necessary in court situations where parents disagree about which educational path you choose. So I would say in that situation, don't try and navigate that on your own. Uh, let yourself be helped by people who have experience in this and how to support you along that. The website, humanitasfamily.net, humanitasfamily.net. We'll speak again next week. Stick with us, plenty of more show to come. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hey, Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. And coincidentally, I also happen to be named Richard Serrett. Uh, that's, that's the only reason I got the job. I happen to have the same name as the show. Which kind of reminds me of uh, a guy I knew back in high school who said, Richard, don't you think it's an amazing coincidence that Lou Gehrig died of Lou Gehrig's disease? I mean, what are the odds? Uh, I should mention this, this program is pre-recorded, and I'll be back in my home studio and resuming live programs on November the 11th, God willing. And the irascible and lovable one, Lou Skeezus, will return. So will the world's worst dad jokes, the German word of the day, the bee or not the bee. I don't know. I, I think these pre-recorded shows sound pretty good. I hope you're enjoying them. But truth be told, there's nothing like live radio. The energy is so different. I liken it to a, a circus performer, the, the tightrope walker working without a net versus a tightrope walker who's only six inches off the ground. So live radio is like working without a net. Anyway, it is what it is. I can't wait to get back home to do this show live. National Post columnist author Barbara Kay will be here this hour. Earlier today, I mentioned the COP26 summit in Glasgow. This is a climate change summit where 100 or so world leaders are meeting to basically plan the destruction of the world's economy under the guise of a global warming emergency, which is a complete fiction. Again, if climate change is such an existential threat, do you think the world leaders would be flying to Glasgow on 400 private jets and driving around in electric cars that have been charged using diesel-powered charging station? So here's the thing. These sociopaths, they actually tell you what they're planning on doing, so there's no surprise. Climate change will be used to change the world economic order. And, and not for our good. It's about control. Uh, as they see it, there are nearly 8 billion of us useless eaters using up their natural resources, their natural resources. That's how they see us. They have a, a tremendous disdain for humanity. They look at humanity as a cancer, a blight. They want to get rid of about three quarters of us. 
We'll use less of their resources that way and will be easier to control. So here's Prince Charles, heir to the throne of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, speaking out about the urgent need to act on climate change. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Did you catch that? We need a vast military-style campaign. Military-style campaign. That sounds rather ominous. And these speeches are crafted and, and well thought out. He wasn't speaking off the cuff. He used the term military-style campaign with regards to implementing climate change action. Remember that, he told us, we've been warned, we shouldn't be surprised. It's kind of a scary thing to think, the only thing standing in the way of this clown becoming our sovereign is his increasingly frail 96-year-old mother. Remember, Prince Charles' father, Prince Philip, was once asked by a journalist, if he were to be reincarnated after his death, what would he like to come back as? And Prince Philip responded, I'd like to come back as a deadly human virus. A deadly human virus. One of the things I've actually been encouraged by is the transformation of former lefties. The transformation of certain high-profile influencers, celebrities, people who were formerly very progressive, it's been quite remarkable, to say the least. People like British comedian Russell Brand, he's had quite a transformation, a, quite a reawakening, quite the opposite of being woke. I mean, I guess you could say that woke in the right way, that he's now woke in the right way, not the radical left meaning of the word woke. Bill Maher is another, and I'm, I'm not a fan of Bill Maher. There's no question, he's, he's, he's a talent, very smart. But in many ways, I find him to be an anti-religious bigot. But he is becoming increasingly annoyed, dismayed by those on the left, particularly when it comes to cancel culture. And while he's also become an influential voice when it comes to pushing back against some of the false COVID narratives, here he is championing natural immunity from a prior infection from COVID. World, we're ready to be done with this. But we're not done until the world is safe, and we're not safe as except, a world until the world's not safe. Except the, <clears throat> the world recognizes natural immunity. We don't, because everything in this country has to go through the pharmaceutical companies. Natural immunity is the best kind of immunity. We shouldn't fire people who have natural immunity because they don't get the vaccine. We should hire them. Yes? 
If someone tests as having antibodies. Well, sure. okay, but, but, you know, people who've had it, I've had it. Right. You know, I, I mean, I shouldn't be tested anymore. And just a little messaging. I mean, I see it all the time. I saw it driving in today. People outside alone walking with a mask. It's so stupid. It's, it's, it's an amulet. You know, yes. some, a charm people a wear scapula. around neck yes. to ward away evil exactly. spirits. It means nothing. I mean, can't we get people to understand the facts more? I mean, listen to this. For unvaccinated hospitalization risk, unvaccinated, 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. Unvaccinated hospitalization rate for the vaccinated is actually 0.01%. And the rate for the unvaccinated is 0.89%. So in both cases, the correct answer is less than 1%. They thought it was over 50. How do people, especially of one party, get such a bad idea? Where did that come from? <laughs> Where did that come from? Where did bad ideas? Where did they come from? Why does the left embrace so many bad ideas? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, Bill. Those on the, the political left never met a bad idea they didn't like or they didn't seem to embrace. The left is all about bad policy because their policy decisions are based on what looks like the right thing to do, what feels like the right thing to do. It's never about what actually works. A perfect example is minimum wage. And the left is all about raising the minimum wage. It sounds like a good idea. It feels like the right thing to do, but it's a bad policy. It doesn't work. The minimum wage should be zero. You let the market decide. All you do by raising the minimum wage is hurt businesses that hire people. And now we have this study that confirms raising the minimum wage helps no one. This is from our good friends at the Epoch Times. And the headline reads, more than 90% of minimum wage earners don't live in poor households. This is a new study. It goes on. The vast majority of minimum wage earners, get this, in Canada, the vast majority of minimum wage earners in Canada don't live in low-income households. And most are teens or young adults living with family, according to a new study. It raises questions about the effectiveness of higher wage floors in reducing poverty. The study was conducted by the Fraser Institute and titled, Who Earns the Minimum Wage in Canada? The study found that 92.3% of the country's minimum wage earners live in households that are above Statistics Canada's low-income cutoff line. More than half, 53%, are aged between 15 and 24 in 2019, the latest year of available data. And among this group, 84.1% live with their parents or other relatives. Raising the minimum wage is often presented as a strategy for helping the working poor, but these data raise questions about its efficacy in achieving this goal simply because most minimum wage earners aren't living in low-income families, said study co-author Ben Eisen, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, in an October 28th press release. Most of the minimum wage earners are in fact secondary or tertiary earners rather than primary breadwinners in their households, the study explained. Only 7.7% of minimum wage earners actually live in low-income households, a relatively small percentage compared to those who don't, the study found. 
By making labor artificially more expensive, increasing the minimum wage may significantly reduce employment among teenagers and other groups of low-skilled workers, according to the authors of Raising the Minimum Wage, Misguided Policy, Unintended Consequences. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. And that is the problem with the policies of the political left. Their ideas feel like the right thing to do. They might even look like the right thing to do. But so often, they yield bad, unintended consequences. Straight ahead on The Richard Serrett Show, National Post columnist Barbara Kay will be here. She's the co-author, along with our good friend Linda Blade, of Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. We'll we'll touch on that, but also a recent column of Barbara's in which she explains the ways that woke extremists are standing in the way of scientific progress. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show in three minutes. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Barbara Kay is a columnist at the National Post and the Post Millennial and co-author of Unsporting, how trans activism, science denial, and science denial are destroying sport, along with co-author Linda Blade. Barbara, welcome. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on your show. Writing that book, the pushback, whenever one ventures into the trans activism arena, let's call it, is particularly nasty. What have you experienced after writing, co-authoring, Unsporting? Well, I think you've described the atmosphere very well. It is very toxic, and it's a very tense issue to get into. This is a movement that is extremely well-funded, very well-organized, and it has a very take-no-prisoners feel to it. They can marshal. A lot of forces get marshaled very instantly uh, as soon as there's any pushback by, I don't know, legislatures trying to you know, uh, changed laws around sport, say. So our book in itself uh, has not gotten a lot of blowback because it's a Canadian. It, it has not achieved wide recognition outside of Canada uh, in certain areas of Canada. But the, Lin, both Linda and I have experienced uh, tremendous hostility uh, from trans activists. We, we certainly uh, know what it's like to be vilified and called transphobic and a bigot and, and terrible names. I I am more used to this kind of thing than Linda. <laughs> but I Linda to me is an icon of bravery 
uh, on this sport, I like to remind people that Linda is, I thought, when she came forward with her objections uh, as a coach, as the president of Athletics Alberta, as a former elite athlete herself who was on an, an Olympic team, I thought, wow, people are going to take courage from her and they're going to some of her colleagues are going to speak up as well, people who have been too afraid. And this, you know, when I, we first met, it's now almost two years ago, nothing, nothing of the kind has happened. Linda is still literally the only coach and high elite athlete, former elite athlete in Canada, who speaks out, puts her name and her reputation on the line for the necessity of, of uh, biological categories in sport. But just nobody who, in the, who is a stakeholder in Canadian sport at all has rallied to her publicly and said, Linda's right, and we've been too timid, uh, but we recognize uh, that this is a policy that is harmful to girls, discouraging to girls and women, uh, and it were too uncomfortable to keep silent about it or to pretend that we think that it's a level playing field anymore. So uh, Linda is, is a hero to me and I um, continue to be awed by her very civil but, but implacable intention and, and her dedication uh, to speaking out on this issue. It goes without saying that, that transgender individuals are deserving of respect and, sh- and should be left alone and should be protected. Because I think what we're talking about here is the transgender activists, not necessarily transgendered individuals. Yeah, yeah. Most, most transgender people are not serious competitive athletes. And there's not that many trans, truly gender uh, people who have transitioned in adulthood uh, to uh, so, so we're, we're talking about not at the moment a very huge number of, of people. However, the activists are the ones who uh, make it their business to, uh, they have a goal of transforming every enterprise in our cultural life. And on principle, uh, they will put themselves forward uh, into an area in which they may have no interest at all, uh, say a rape crisis center, well, you'll find an activist uh, will, will decide they have to be a counselor in a rape crisis center. They may have had no such ambition before, but this is part of their work. And simply to assert their right to be there and to normalize the practice of uh, biological males having a role in areas in which it has always been taken for granted that women's privacy or security um, is the guiding principle. Uh, same with prisons. We know for a fact, it's quite obvious that there are now biological males in prisons who have never in their entire lives experienced or um, presented as gender dysphoric, ever. Uh, we're talking about violent criminals who taking advantage of a new law that that states uh, that gender identity alone uh, is the only criterion for requesting a transfer to a woman's prison, um, are now taking advantage of it in numbers and in ways that that make it completely evident that their motive is simply, I'd like to get out of this uh, male prison where it's not very comfortable for me, 
And I'd like to be amongst women, some for really, you know, there have been cases of um, motives that we know are, are actually not only misogynistic, but, but criminal. Barbara Kay, back with more in a minute. Don't go away. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. We are back with Barbara Kay, columnist at the National Post and the Post Millennial. The whole uh, trans activism issue moves into another area, and that is the erasure of women. If you go into a doctor's office, the signage on the wall, people who menstruate, people who get pregnant. What is behind this movement to erase womanhood? Well, that the language, you know, as Orwell says, uh, the whole the whole point of changing words uh, is 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 to achieve power not over what people can do, but over what they can think and what they can say. So, if you keep telling people that it is phobic to use the word women in conjunction with motherhood or pregnancy or whatever you'll eventually make them feel embarrassed about using the word then. So you're now using uh, these idiotic nomenclatures, uh, people with penises and people with vaginas. The, the goal is women erasure, and the, the drive for that erasure is coming from biological men who go far beyond uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, they wish to uh, present as women, they're very aware, though, uh, they are not women biologically, but they want the illusion perpetrated that they are. So if they can get people to talk about them uh, as being the, that all women, including them, are people that are, when you say the word women, it has to include biological men like them, uh, that per- perpetuates the delusion that they they seek for themselves. And a lot of these men are autogynophiles, uh, men who get off erotically on uh, perceiving themselves as women or thinking of themselves as women. These men are probably very tortured, but they are not mentally wholesome people in the sense that uh, their, their agenda has nothing to do with justice or nothing to do with gender justice and very much has to do with the psychological needs of a very small proportion of men who have extremely mixed feelings about biological women. I don't, I don't claim to understand it, but I, it, it, it comes out in extremely misogynistic ways uh, as experienced by actual women. So it's, it, it, there's a lot going on under the surface of this thing, and it's not, you know, a lot of people think it's about justice and about fairness and about inclusion, this magic word inclusion, uh, which sounds very nice, but uh, underneath it's a rock and there's a lot of snakes underneath it and the snakes only attack girls and women. And, uh, you know, boys and men are oblivious to all this because they're not affected by this. Let's talk about wokeism as it affects science, a subject of a recent National Post column that you wrote. It almost devolves into a Monty Python sketch. You write about Scientific American, which used to be a pretty prestigious scientific journal. Recently, mm-hmm. it published a critique of the acronym JEDI, as in Jedi Knights from Star Wars. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the, the acronym JEDI is supposed to stand for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Uh, but it became a, a sort of a hot 
topic or a, a third rail uh, amongst some woke students because they said, uh, oh, the Jedi Knights, they're intergalactic police, you know, and of course the, the police are in themselves a, a fraught topic because of the Black Lives Matter movement. They make non-white people are the aliens, again, another example of white supremacy. So nothing, nothing remains untouched by wokists. And the whole point about the sciences being a special category of, of the university is that up until quite recently, wokeism had pervaded all the humanities and all the social sciences. But, the, you know, STEM, which stands for science, technology, um, engineering and mathematics, were relatively unscathed because these are objective, hard sciences, and uh, the people most attracted to them have traditionally been male students, and they it remains that way, that, that uh, if, if you didn't have affirmative action for women students, you would still get a preponderance of males in those sciences. But the diversity and inclusion movement has decided that, uh, that white males have to go, or they have to be submerged by other, uh, by minorities, and especially by women, but, you know, also by other minorities, too. And so they're giving uh, the scientists, the, the white male scientists, are, are having a very hard time now getting jobs, uh, getting their research published. You cannot publish research anymore unless you can prove that it's going to have a positive impact on diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you can't always prove that. Um, so the, 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 through affirmative action, these, the sciences are now becoming do dominated by feminist activists and other kinds of activists who are making, sometimes making a joke out of scientific research. I've written particularly about astronomy and astrophysics because this is the science that has sort of been affected the most for some reason by a uh, kind of invasion of political correctness and identity politics uh, into this realm. And a lot of scientists are, are quite fed up with it, and I don't blame them. All right, Barbara, we'll take another time out, come back and uh, discuss some Indigenous matters. Barbara Kay, National Post and Post-Millennial columnist, back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. minutes remain with Barbara Kay, National Post, post-millennial columnist. The Canadian flag remains at half-mast. Our self-loathing Prime Minister seems intent on keeping it at half-mast indefinitely, some sort of virtue signaling about his remorse over the ongoing genocide of uh, Indigenous people. You've written about this, you've talked to historians, some of whom, who have said, listen, let's, let's get serious here. There were horrible things done in residential schools. But to call what has happened in our country's past as an ongoing genocide is way off the mark. Talk to me about that. Well, I think he was a drama teacher, and he is an actor, and a, not a very good one. And performing is his natural mode. Performing sentiments, performing remorse, performing love, performing all kinds of emotions comes very naturally to him. Uh, actually acting and executing remorse is not his strong suit, as we have seen on the new Remembrance Day that was created for the Indigenous peoples uh, to remember the hard times they went through, and he took off to serve in Tofino. So 
So that was kind of symbolic of what our prime minister is as a human being. But the stupidest thing he ever did with regard to, and I understand him wanting to make things right with the Indigenous people, but the dumbest thing he, he could have done is to double down on this idea that what the Indigenous peoples in Canada suffered was a genocide and to insist that the residential schools were a cultural genocide. There actually, to my mind, is no such thing as a cultural genocide. There is such a thing as forced assimilation and there is such a thing as ethnic cleansing. And we have words to describe, we already have words to describe what happened to our Indigenous peoples, and they are words that describe unpleasant activities. But they were not a genocide. They were nothing like a genocide. And a genocide does mean something specific, and it's defined by the United Nations. And, and the principal thing about genocide is intention to eradicate. They insist that there was an intention, that the residential schools were the execution of that hoped-for eradication. They were nothing of the kind, bad as they were in some of them. You know, people whose own ancestors had suffered real genocides. As a Jew, I feel that being forced to put the residential schools in the same category as uh, Auschwitz is quite sickening to me. And I do believe in the principle that categorization is the basis of knowledge. And in a sense, uh, we're now mirroring this whole idea that sex and gender are indistinguishable. They are not indistinguishable. They are very distinct categories. And here, too, Rwanda and the Holocaust are not the residential schools. And what bothers me the most about this idea that it is an ongoing genocide, which is, is absolutely ridiculous and stupid, no people in the midst of the genocide have a truth and reconciliation process that goes on for years and years and years, and nobody in a genocidal process is getting billions of dollars handed over routinely. So this is nonsense, but we are compelled, the same way you are compelled to use pronouns that you don't want to use to make certain ideologues feel good about themselves, same way here, we are forced to use the word genocide when we don't want to, and we are forced also to suppress research that would indicate that not only were the residential schools not a genocide, but that many of the narratives around them are not based in actual evidence, but in sometimes dubious stories, oral claims that are not always borne out. And, just, and I'm not saying that people lied. What I'm saying is that one, that people who did say that the residential schools were good for them, their stories were not, not given, to say the least, the airing, that uh, the uniformly negative stories. But also, the reason this, the flag went down to half-mast, this idea of unmarked graves at Kamloops, this story was blown out of all proportion. Some media outlets called it mass graves. A mass grave indicates killing. That's why people are buried in mass graves. They're all killed at the same time. They want you to believe that the children were killed at these schools indiscriminately because of who they were. That's a terrible untruth. And the fact is that there were no discovered children buried because what they discovered was soil disturbance. That's what this infrared or this, this technology uncovered. And we also know, I, I happen to be a member of a group of uh, people that talk back and forth on these issues, and some of them are deep, deep, deep researchers who have found the record for children who were buried there, their names. These are not newly discovered children. A lot of these children we have records for, and they weren't killed, and they whatever they died of, it was either disease or they're accounted for. 
So there's not five or 10 or 15,000 missing children as seems to be suggested. We don't know how many missing children there are because there's very few actually reported missing children by their parents. But we're not allowed to talk about any of this stuff. We're just not allowed to. And anybody that does, if you're a scholar, you could lose your job over it. And I know somebody who is losing her job over it, a very valuable professor who's probably going to be fired uh, very shortly for even suggesting that there are other stories or there's other sides to the residential school narrative. You're absolutely condemned as criminal uh, because, of course, if it's genocide, uh, if you say it isn't and you have proof, then obviously you're, you become an enemy of the people. And this is thanks to Justin Trudeau, who has brought this really unwholesome situation into being. And I, I do condemn him for that. Barbara, you're a very courageous woman and a fine writer, and I appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Barbara Kay, columnist with the National Post, the post-millennial co-author of Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport, along with co-author Linda Blade. Why did Premier Doug Ford do a complete about-face on vaccine passports? The president of Canada Christian College says, follow the money. He's next. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Several weeks ago, I received a sponsored email, a paid advertisement, titled, Why Did Doug Ford Change His Mind on Vaccine Passports? Follow the money. The ad goes on to say, This summer, the Premier announced he was against vaccine passports. A few weeks later, he changed his mind and instituted a mandatory vaccine passport, stripping away many basic freedoms from over one million Ontarians. Why? Again, follow the money. Doug's campaign manager is Corey Tanaik. Corey is the CEO and co-founder of Rubicon Strategies, a lobbying firm that represents AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and over 100 other biotech and big tech corporations. Here with more is the individual responsible for the sponsored email, Charles McVitie, the president of Canada Christian College. Thank you, Richard, for having me on. There is a law in Parliament that you are not to prosper, you are not to get paid for your position in Parliament other than your regular salary and whatnot. You're not to profit from your position in government. The common phrase for this is pay to play. And so we started looking into this and we were shocked to find that that the campaign manager owns the company that represents Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And then we look back and start asking questions. Why did Doug Ford change? Well, the old age adage, follow the money. When you have huge money, Pfizer has profited $33 billion. That you, you recall in the last few days, you saw the premier of New South Wales step down. It was reportedly $66 million involved. There is, there's huge money in this business. And to see it going to the current campaign manager who is in the caucus regularly, Leading the caucus, it appears to be a gross conflict of interest. And the real issue here, your company shouldn't be benefiting from government decisions. But obviously, they have a contract. Obviously, they're benefiting. Obviously, they're being paid large sums of money. 
And yeah, that's that's when you see massive shifts in policy when they don't make sense. Why? Because money's involved. So just to be crystal clear, you're not alleging any illegal activity. You're simply saying this has the appearance of a conflict of interest. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the law that well. I'm asking questions. He is in the caucus on a regular basis and his influence influences the decisions of of the party, of the premier. And um, uh, so we're asking that question. And one of the reasons we're asking it, because we looked into this and Canada Christian College experienced the same thing, an about face turnaround by the premier where the college is 54 years old. It offers 14 degrees under the Ontario legislature. It has done so for decades. Four doctorates. It applied to change its name to university. The parliament passed the the legislative change. On December the 8th, it got uh, royal assent. Then a few months later, Corey stepped in and stopped the legislation from coming into power. And we looked at this and then found out that his company, Rubicon, was contracted by an adversary of ours that was very outspoken against us, Steve Orsini, contracted, paid money. And then all of a sudden, the premier shifts his, changes his mind. And we've seen the premier change his mind on many things. And following the money is always a, uh, a good path to the truth. And that's what we're after here. So we're asking how much money did Rubicon actually get paid? And why are there so many conservative operatives that are working at Rubicon? The vice president of the party, Patrick Harris, is also profiting at Rubicon, did not even take a leave of absence. Uh, He is representing companies that are making changes in Ontario policy. Now, Charles, if we go to the website, realreason.ca, there we have screenshots from the Ontario Lobbyists Registry showing Rubicon's contract. <clears throat> sure. Is, this is crystal clear, registered with the Lobbyist Registry. AstraZeneca. It doesn't mention Pfizer specifically, I don't think it uh, does it. Well, Pfizer is part of a, a group of 42 big pharma organizations, and they uh, have an organization called Innovative uh, Medicines Canada. And uh, Corey's company represents Innovative Medicines Canada. So they're representing them collectively. So I am, uh, we cannot live in a country where big corporations can pay private people money that are in positions of power, like a campaign manager, and then shape public policy. This is unheard of. It's it's called pay to play. And it it causes the whole breakdown of society because we're our society has to be based on equality. And yes, you can pitch for a change in law, and I can and anyone can, but as soon as you put millions of dollars directly into the pockets of the people that are involved then that is something that breaks down our society. And we, every single one of us should be dreadfully afraid of, the, of a society that acts that way. There's a call to action here on the, uh, the paid advertisement, Charles. You're asking the readers to do what? To go to realreason.ca front, front slash Corey, read the material, look at the 
these screenshots and sign the petition. And what we're mainly after is to ask people to call their MPPs and ask them to investigate this situation. Because if it if it just continues to go on, somehow the uh, NDP that is usually seething to get critical information on, on Doug Ford is silent on this. Because they're silent on anything that has the, that could be critical of the COVID management of our society. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm double vaxxed myself, but I don't believe our government should be firing people. Like, like a, I, I've got a, a pregnant student and she is being fired from her job because she won't take the vaccination <laughs> under the order of the government. It, it's This is wrong. It's a violation of our freedom. It's a violation of our rights. And I stand up for the marginalized. I stand up for those people who are hurting, losing their income, losing their mobility rights to go into restaurants or travel. We don't have two-tiered society. That, that's for the Soviets that don't exist anymore. And I don't think this will exist too long either. I think it's nonsense. It violates our Constitution, our Bill of uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I think it's going to stop soon. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Richard. I I commend you for uh, shining a spotlight on truth, because that's when we get in. We we save our, our system. Thanks. God bless you. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing. We'll push back against climate change alarmism with Tony Heller and much, much more. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.